You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. My name is Mandy, and I serve on our Connections ministry. We're going to be in Genesis 16 today, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Genesis 16, 1 through 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked with content on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she conceived, she looked on me with content. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Laha Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mandy. Good morning, church. Great to see all of you this morning. My name is Brady Goodwin, and I have the honor of serving as one of the pastors here and the privilege of looking at this text with you this morning. Um, Let me start with just a little bit about me. When I was 12 years old, I made the all-region band. Thank you. I was so excited and proud to be able to rehearse and perform with Ellis County and Southern Dallas County's finest 7th and 8th grade musicians. After the concert, I made a beeline with my parents to the merchandise area where I was eager to pick up my t-shirt and my plaque. You guys remember those t-shirts? They had all the names of everybody that made the all-region band or all-region choir, whatever you were a part of. And they had those plaques that commemorated the occasion. But what happened? I got to the table and to my horror, I found that both the plaque and the t-shirt had been misprinted. It was not Brady Goodwin who made the all-region band, but Brandy. (laughs) I know. When I was 19 years old, I was hired at a little store you may have heard of, 
Urban Outfitters. There was a young woman who worked there, and after meeting me and working with me under my given name, she inexplicably began to address me with this greeting. Hey, Barry, how's it going? The summer I got married, about two weeks before the wedding, my pastor, for some unknown reason, he'd known me for years, just started calling me Brad. Thankfully, his memory was jogged before the ceremony, but I was in a bit of distress. At various points in my adult life, I can remember entering into conversation with a person I had met before, whom I clearly remembered, only to have that person look at me and say, hey, I'm Jeff, what's your name? Without the slightest hint of recollection. Our names carry significant value. Call someone by their name and there is recognition and regard. Get get someone's name wrong once, there's grace, but get it wrong repeatedly and we start to show how little care there really is. Ignore their name and you lose something of the person within. Our names matter. This text that we read this morning is a story about naming. It is about what happens when sin blinds us to the nature of our desires and the way sin causes us to devalue other people. But it is about a God who names the outcast and the broken and restores their dignity. And it is about the purposes of God that defy human sin and faithlessness because ultimately this is a story, even in these early chapters, that is about the hope of the gospel. And so we're gonna look at this passage to be able to see three truths that it speaks to us. First, sin distorts our desires and it devalues others. Second, God redeems our sin brokenness and God sees us. And third, the gospel is for the nameless and the outcast. Sin distorts our desires and devalues others. God redeems our sin brokenness and God sees us. And the gospel is for the nameless and the outcast. So first, let's see looking at verse one, how sin distorts our desires and devalues other people. Let's remember where we are in the narrative. A few weeks ago, back in Genesis 12, verses two and three, God came to Abram and he made this promise. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And as we said a few weeks ago, Almost immediately, Abram acts in unfaithfulness in Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20, as he and Sarai respond to a perceived threat as they enter Egypt. But as we saw last week, in Genesis 15, 1, God reiterates and expands the promise that he made to Abram. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But this time, however, Abram asks God, how? 
How, given that he did not yet have an offspring from whom a nation could come, how would God fulfill this promise? And so God's response is to tell Abram, your very own son shall be your heir. And after this, we see the remarkable response of faith from Abram and the ratification of God's covenant through the rest of the chapter. Yet, as with the promise of Genesis 12 and Abram and Sarai's problem as they entered Egypt, so too in Genesis 16 do we see a problem that follows the promise of Genesis 15. Sarai, the one from whom this offspring was also to come, has not been able to conceive as we see in Genesis 16.1, where it says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And so again, Abram and Sarai are faced with a choice. God has promised, but the fulfillment has not yet come. What are they to do? And unfortunately, as we see with the second half of Genesis 12, their response here is marked by self-reliance. We begin to see this with the second half of verse one, where we see that Sarai had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And most likely, Hagar was someone who joined Abram's company back when they were in Egypt in Genesis 12. That Hagar was an Egyptian would have been an interesting thing for the Israelites to hear. They had just left Egypt. And now we have a story of an Egyptian servant bound up in the history of their own people. Hagar would have been much younger than Sarai and still well within her childbearing years, which prompts Sarai to say in verse two, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. There's two things that are happening in Sarai's statement to Abram in verse two. First, notice that Sarai attributes her barrenness to the Lord. And it's not clear whether she means this in a negative way, but only that she sees that it is God who gives the gift of children to his people. And that from her perspective, he has chosen not to do this up to this point. Second, she instructs Abram in verse two, to go into Hagar, which is just a Bible way of saying that she is telling Abram to begin a sexual relationship with Hagar. So as modern people, we read this and we think, how could a wife tell a husband to do such a thing? But notice the explanation that follows the command. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. From Sarai's point of view, she is actually doing something very consistent with the practices of the ancient Near East. And so if a woman was barren in this age, and if she had a servant in her employ, it was quite common for her to offer up that servant as a surrogate. There are examples all through ancient Near Eastern literature that point to these kinds of arrangements, no matter how we might regard them in our day. But in such an arrangement, the child, if one was conceived, would not be the servant's child, but rather the married woman's who offered up the servant. And so it's plausible to conclude then that from Sarai's point of view, she was by offering Hagar to Abram, simply utilizing a culturally accepted means to see God's promise fulfilled. However, there are several aspects 
in this narrative that demonstrate to us that Sarai is not operating with such a posture. Instead, the narrative reveals that Sarai is seeking to take matters into her own hands, just as Abram did in Genesis 12. And that Abram, like Sarai in Genesis 12, joins her in this pursuit. The first clue that tells us this is happening comes at the end of verse two. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. This is identical language to Genesis 3.17, where Adam incurs God's judgment, quote, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree. You might be tempted to think that this text and its counterpart in Genesis 16 is saying that the problem is that Abram listened to Sarai. That's not what's happening. Wise husbands, if they are wise, will listen to their wives all the time. No, we are meant to see a parallel. In Genesis 12, it was Abram leading Sarai through unfaithfulness. Here in this passage, just as Adam and Eve walked in unfaithfulness and self-reliance in the garden, so too are Abram and Sarai walking down the same path. And so in verse three, we see the outcome. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. We have a time marker that helps us to see how long has elapsed since the initial promise was given in Genesis 12. We see as well that Hagar is given the title of wife rather than the lesser form of concubine, which was not always the way that someone in her position would have been regarded or described in the biblical text. But we also see Hagar's lack of agency. Just as Sarai simply told Abram to take Hagar as a wife in verse two, so now Abram does it and Hagar has no choice. But something that isn't a part of Sarai's plan happens in Genesis 16:4. Read with me. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Hagar becomes pregnant. But instead of staying where she was supposed to stay in the pecking order, she becomes proud and arrogant. Sarai was barren, but Hagar wasn't. Sarai was left out, but Hagar favored. It's hard to know exactly what's happening in Hagar's heart in this moment, but the text seems to imply that just as Sarai and Abram we're walking in a kind of unfaithfulness and self-reliance, so too is Hagar in response to the pregnancy. But in Genesis 16:5, we see a second example of Sarai's heart condition and one that truly reveals her motivations in having Abram take Hagar as a wife. When we don't get what we want, how we respond shows us the way we were wanting the thing we wanted. Look at verse five. Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong be, that's been done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Sarai is revealing that what she was really after was not the fulfillment of God's promise, but a child. 
And even in this, there is a great deal of sympathy. Sarai was barren. In such a day where women had no real status already, to have a child meant something. The pastor Timothy Keller will note in a sermon on this passage that children in this time were seen as a woman's capital. They didn't have property or any other means of status in society, but they could have children. And so Sarai is conflicted, as so many women in our society today are when they are faced themselves with the prospect of childlessness. It's easy to feel like less of a woman, like less of a human, when this part of God's design seems out of reach. And like Sarai, I know that it can be tempting to take matters into our own hands. However, what's happening here is what happens anytime Our desire for a good thing eclipses our trust in the God who gives every good and perfect gift. This is a process distinct from God's promise in this passage. God has promised an offspring to Abram and Sarai through whom all the nations will be blessed, but Sarai wants a child for herself. She is ultimately less concerned about God's promise, for if she was, she would wait for his fulfillment rather than to pursue an attempt at self-actualization. Abram, for his part, is not much better. He simply instructs Sarai to do as she pleases to her servant, which is what we read in verse 6. Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she, Hagar, fled from her. We don't know exactly what kind of mistreatment this involved, but it was significant enough that Hagar, as a slave away from her homeland, felt it necessary to flee. So what's happening in verses one through six? We have in this section of the narrative a living case study of sin and its effects, both personally and in relation to others. We see that Sarai sought the path of self-reliance following the apparent delay in God's promise being fulfilled. And in response, she abuses someone in her care and who is experiencing the gift that she herself has desired. We see Abram not only following Sarai in her rebellion, but acquiescing to a second wife, which never goes well in the scriptures or in any other part of life, but he also passively instructs Sarai to do whatever you want with Hagar. She's not my servant, she's yours. But we also see Hagar, though she was mistreated and devalued, elevating herself in relation to Sarai. And you may not have noticed this yet, but all through this part of the narrative, when Abram and Sarai refer to Hagar, they never call her by name. So disregarded is she that she's simply the servant. We see in these various responses a picture of what sin does to a person's heart. Sin causes us to pursue the wrong things or to pursue good things in the wrong way. It causes us to passively react to our situation and to submit to the opinions and desires of other people. And perhaps most devastatingly, it causes us to devalue others in pursuit of our own ends. We see ourselves as ultimate and we see others as less than. 
So how do these traits apply to you today? Are there places where you can identify with Sarai's or Abram's or Hagar's responses to their struggles? Where have you longed for something that is perhaps even good, but have found yourself so fixated on it that your response is something less than trusting faith? Where have you seen yourself disregard another person because you were so focused on your own priorities? Or where have you been mistreated by another who was driven by the same goals? However, these stories map onto yours because they do in some way. There is great hope in the way that God reveals his grace in the next part of the narrative. And that leads us to our second point where sin distorts our desires and leads us to devalue others. God redeems our sin brokenness and God truly sees us. So let's look now at verse seven. So Hagar has left Sarai and Abram and she heads south. And it is here that she meets an unexpected party. In Genesis 16, 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Hagar, it seems, is most likely heading back to Egypt. She's returning to her home in light of the difficulties she faced. This perhaps would have been ironic for the nation of Israel. It was they who had left Egypt not long earlier, and who very quickly after their deliverance found themselves in the wilderness, struggling and longing to return to the relative security of the only life they had known. Hagar is displaying something similar, but she's found by the angel of the Lord. So you might be asking, was Hagar visited by God? Yes. Anytime we see in scripture, the angel of the Lord, we can see by how he speaks and how others respond that this is not simply God's messenger, but rather a representation of God himself that shows up in a way that is able to be seen by human beings. God will tell Moses, you cannot look upon me and, li and live. And so he shows up in a way where he can actually be seen. And so we see this in Genesis 18. We see this when Jacob wrestles with an unknown man in Genesis 32, this man who turns out to be a personification of the Lord. And we see it in Exodus 3 when the angel appears as a flame of fire in the burning bush before Moses. And so God appears to Hagar and he says two things that stand out. Look at verse eight. Hagar, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? You see what happened? Abram and Sarai never spoke to Hagar by name, but God does. He calls her Hagar. Just as Jesus calls out to the young girl who recently died, Talitha Kumi, little girl. Just as Jesus declared to his friend, Lazarus, come out so too does God breathe life into Hagar's situation by calling her name. There are wounds that only God can heal. But next, he asks her a question. 
Earlier, we talked about how Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, his wife, and that this was a parallel to the same kind of language used to refer to Adam's sin in Genesis 3.17. Now, we see another parallel, but one that comes closer to the question that God asks Adam in the garden after his sin, when he says, Adam, where are you? Hagar, where have you come from? And where are you going? You and I have had this question asked of us as well. It happens every time we find ourselves on the familiar end of failure. It happens after every fight we have with our spouse. Between the initial lie of temptation, but before the watershed experience of repentance, it is the question God asks when we are sitting in the weight of our struggles, wrestling with the self-justification that got us there, but the increasing sense that all is not well in our hearts. Hagar was mid-flight, on her way, but God intervenes. Where have you come from and where are you going? Hagar's response is candid. I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. But God's response is unexpected, as we see in verse nine. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. You might be thinking about this point. How could God say to Hagar, after suffering abuse and mistreatment at the hands of Sarai and after experiencing neglect through her and her life in Abram and Sarai's home and after finding herself pregnant in a marriage she was compelled to enter, how could God say to Hagar, return to your mistress and submit to her? How could he do this? Isn't this the same kind of theology that is at the heart of everything that seems to be wrong with Christian practice in our culture today? Isn't it capricious or unsettled and unpredictable at best or malicious at worst for God to instruct her in such a way? Recently, I've been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia with my kids. And there's this really profound scene in one of the stories, the magician's nephew. Maybe you've read it. In this story, there is a young boy named Diggory. And Diggory is the main male protagonist in this story. And he is sent on a mission by Aslan, the glorious lion who created and is Lord over Narnia. Diggory is thrilled to be chosen by Aslan for such a purpose, but he is also troubled. You see, Diggory's mother, back in London, is terminally ill. And all Diggory wants is for Aslan to give him something that will cure his mother. And he wonders, is it appropriate for him to ask Aslan for this cure? But he doesn't know the best time to speak up. And finally, he can't hold it back anymore. And he blurts out just before the mission and cries out to Aslan, but please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure My mother? In Narnia, it says this, up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own and great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. 
They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan. I know. Grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. And so despite Aslan's tenderness, he doesn't actually answer Diggory's request. It is only after Diggory completes the mission that Aslan responds. Aslan's mission was for Diggory to travel far away to a garden where he was to to pick a particular apple and to bring it back to Aslan. And while he was in the garden, he was met by the evil witch, Jadis, who shared that the apple in question was actually the apple of youth. One bite would bring healing. She tempts him to take one of the fruit for himself to take back to his mother. But Diggory didn't do it. Instead, he brought the apple as commanded to Aslan. Aslan then plants the apple and it grows into a tree that would serve as a shield to the citizens of Narnia. But when Diggory explains to Aslan how he was tempted to take the apple and to bring it back to save his mother, Aslan tells him something both beautiful and tragic. He says, yes, it would have healed her, but not to your joy or hers. The day would have come when both you and she would have looked back and said, it would have been better to die in that illness. And Diggory could say nothing for tears choked him and he gave up all hopes of saving his mother. But at the same time, he knew that the lion knew what would have happened and that there might be things more terrible even than losing someone you love by death but it goes on. But now Aslan was speaking again, almost in a whisper. That is what would have happened, child, with a stolen apple. But it is not what will happen now. What I give you now will bring joy. It will not, in your world, give endless life, but it will heal. Go, pluck her an apple from the tree. Isn't that beautiful? Diggory didn't know that despite his pleas and despite his temptations, which seemed to go unaddressed at first, Aslan heard his cries. Hagar did not know why God would instruct her to return to Sarai because she didn't know what God was going to do. You and I operate on the basis of limited knowledge but we would never do things differently from God if we knew all that he knows. And so God instructs her to return to Sarai, but he does so with a promise, which is what we see in verse 10. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. This is not the same promise as the promise God makes to Abram. Abram would be the one through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. And as we have seen in previous weeks, this is a promise that is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus himself. No, 
Hagar would not be the mother through whom the promise would be fulfilled. But she and her children after her would indeed become a great nation, as we see in verses 11 and 12. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your cries. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. Any of you have sons like that? I do. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Don't you love the explanation of Ishmael's name? It means God hears. God heard Hagar's distress. And even though he sent her back to Sarai, it was not without a redemptive purpose. And even though Ishmael would not be in the line of redemptive history in the same way as his half-brother Isaac later in the story, through this account, God redeems Hagar in a way that completely defies the scorn she suffered from Sarai and Abram. Her offspring, notice, would be hers. And a nation too would come about as a result. And so how are you thinking about the brokenness and the suffering that has come to your life? And when we talk about brokenness, to be clear, we are talking about the way our sin or the sin of others leaves devastation in its wake. Sometimes we can be tempted to look at brokenness as the main problem and miss the motivation that produces it. But our brokenness instead is meant to lead us to a question. How did this happen? How did I get here? In the same way, when we are suffering, whether through our circumstances or perhaps because of the sin of others, there is a part of us that says, how can I get as far from this as I can as quickly as I can? We want to escape, to protect ourselves, to prevent further injury. But do you see what God is doing in Hagar's story? He tells her to go back, to not seek to escape her pain but to see the larger story. For through it, God is going to do something miraculous. He's going to redeem her suffering. He's going to bring about life where before there was only the possibility of death. He is going to do what he so often does and what he does most amazingly through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to take suffering and death and to turn them on their head so that they lead to glory. And it's so interesting because we might be tempted, if we were speaking to Hagar, we might be tempted to highlight her role and to say something like, Hagar, you need to repent of your sin and to go back to Sarai and humble herself. But we see God simply asking, Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? Before he offers a promise that doesn't actually connect to the question. And it just shows us that our God is a God of redemption because he knows the full story and he's working every angle for good. And so this leads us to verse 13, which is honestly one of the more remarkable verses in all of the Bible. Look at 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. 
I love the way this is rendered in the NIV. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. It's three things that stand out in verse 13. First, Hagar actually names God. This doesn't happen anywhere else. And usually it's the other way around. God names Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah. God names Jacob, Israel, and so forth. But here, Hagar names God. It is a remarkable display of honor and dignity on Hagar that speaks to the restoration God is bringing to her story. But second, what Hagar names God is in keeping with the actions in this narrative. You are the God who sees me. She ascribes an attribute to him of great care and mercy. In our culture, we have incorporated this kind of language when we want to communicate someone's value, especially if they are feeling unseen. And so we say, Christians and non-Christians alike, we say, you are seen, you are loved. And if I'm completely honest, that language has kind of irked me. Can I say that? Is that okay? Thanks, Austin. Here's why. We've seen it on social media. We see it in branding campaigns. And while I know that it is a saying in our day that we use to convey worth, its common usage can actually have the effect of saying, be warm, be fed, be well. In other words, to say someone is seen can be a way we want someone to feel better, but without pointing to the true means by which their restoration will come. Yes, you are seen, but by whom? That is the crucially important question. And so Hagar tells us, you are the God who sees me because I have now seen the one who sees me. You are the God who calls me by name. You are the God who redeems my story, even in ways that I wouldn't want, but that I now see are needed. You are the God who has heard my distress and has given me far more than I could have known I'd receive. And through these things, I have seen you. You are the God who sees. And so this interchange leads Hagar not to just name God, but to name the place of the encounter as we see in verse 14. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy or the well of the living one who sees me. And so all of this, this beauty, this glory of this story leads to our final point. Sin distorts our desires and leads us to devalue others. God redeems us and sees us. And this shows us that the gospel is for the nameless and the outcast. Look at verse 15. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So earlier we observed how the narrative contrasts the namelessness of Hagar in verses one through six and how God calls her by name in verse seven. And here we see Abram naming his son according to the word of the Lord given to Hagar. We see as well the specific note that it is Hagar who bore this son, highlighting her place in this episode of Abram's story. I don't believe these details are by chance because they foreshadow the power of the gospel to do the same things, to give us a new name and to bring us into God's family. The gospel is this, 
that our sin against, against God brought about the distortion in our lives and a kind of self-devaluation as we lived for our purposes apart from God, but that as a result, we found ourselves in the state of despair and hopelessness, just like Hagar. But as we have seen, God has been writing a story throughout history that leaves redemption everywhere in its wake. It is a story of our great redeemer, Jesus Christ, who came to take our sin upon himself, to die in our place, but to rise to give life to all who would call upon him. It is a story that begins with Abraham, which finds its climactic point at the cross and the resurrection but now includes you and me. But what's more, Jesus gives us a new name. You and I, if we are not rescued by God, we will always find ourselves in a kind of nameless state. We know and we pray that we have value, but we can't quite figure out how or where to find it. But God in his grace comes down to us and says, Hagar or Brady or Patty, he names us because through the blood of Jesus Christ, he makes the nameless his own. But this naming also means that we become family. Several years ago, I sat in a staff development for our church staff and a man spoke who had seven children, three of whom were adopted. And I thought, seven, whoa. But he talked about how immediately as these children came into the family, they were identified with the family name. It didn't matter where they had come from or where they were going because they were now a part of something new. They had received a new name and this meant they were family. Through Jesus Christ, you and I who believe in him have become heirs of God and co-heirs, brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. We are sons and daughters of the great King and nothing can change that. And so as we wrap up this morning, I'd like us to consider three questions. First, where are you struggling with sin's distortion or sin's devaluing power? In other words, what hurts? What feels unsettled? What needs healing? The question is not if, but how you are being affected by sin in your hearts and in the brokenness of this world. Where are you struggling? Second, where is the Lord speaking to you today? Where is he calling out your name? How do you sense him ministering to your soul as you engage his word? Yes, I know that was three questions. You know me, guys. <laughs> Subpoint. Subpoint three. Third, what response do you need to make? Is it humble repentance to him or to others? Is it to receive the grace of the gospel that gives a new name? What happens next for you? And so sin distorts and devalues, but God redeems and sees. And the good news of Jesus is for the nameless and the outcast. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the provision of your word. Thank you for this beautiful story that shows us so clearly 
your heart and character and how those have been expressed throughout the ages. Thank you that you do not leave us without hope, but you give us a new name through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that by your spirit, you would help us to apply these truths to our hearts and to strengthen us in our love for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.